Good morning, church. Would you please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. This morning we find ourselves in the third chapter of Nehemiah. We'll be covering all 32 verses this morning. This is one of those lists again, this time of the work that was performed on the wall and who did what. I'll read the text over us this morning. Remember that these are the very words of God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They set it apart as holy and made its doors stand. And they set apart as holy the wall of the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Henanel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built... And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and made its doors stand with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not support the service of their masters. Joyeda, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and made its doors stand with its bolts and bars. Next to them... Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Herheah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumaph, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaneah, made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section, and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and made its doors stand with its bolts and its bars, and 1,000 cubits of the wall to the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He built it and made its door stand with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hozes, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the spring gate. He built it, covered it, and made its door stand with its bolts and its bars. And the wall of the pool of Shelah and the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brothers made repairs under Bavai, the son of Henadad, the official of the other half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of 
of Eliashib's house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Padeah, the son of Parash, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, made repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you take your seats, as we do each week, we will ask God's blessing on our time. Father, your word is true and powerful for the edification of our lives from cover to cover. We look into the text this morning and we see what seems to us in 2023 to be some obscure list of names, but here there's food for our souls. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit alone and through the efficacy of your word this morning, you would show us that we can be encouraged in all of scripture, even here in Nehemiah 3. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, there are a handful of moments in recent history that have always raised my curiosity. One of them is the nuclear disaster at the Chernobyl power plant in what used to be called the or what used to be the Ukrainian SSR. I can't explain with any expertise what exactly went wrong in this situation. For that, Philip and Matthew Bond are going to have to hold an informal class during the fellowship meal at some point. If you attend that informal meeting, I am confident that you will be thoroughly educated and informed on the full story of what happened, and you'll likely be subjected to a number of engineering puns. In layman's terms, during a routine safety test, someone made a bad decision, which was followed by another bad decision, and then another, leading to a chain of events in which the whole reactor melted down. The subsequent explosion created a fire that burned for nine days, spreading radioactive contaminants into the air over neighboring areas, chief among them, the city designed to be the Soviet's prized gem of socialist industrial glory, that is the city of Pripyat. This was the town that was going to show the world just how much farther communism could propel civilization. I saw a video recently where some graphic designers created a virtual reality walkthrough of what Pripyat would look like today had the Chernobyl disaster not taken place. And it is remarkable what they were imagining doing. The shops, the high-rises, the commercialism, the industry. But as you know, God has his own way of telling the story. The only thing that plot of land is good for today is what in 2019 was called radioactive tourism. Yes, that's a thing. 
It also has been helpful for laying out multiplayer maps in Call of Duty video games, but not much else. When you walk down Market Street in the heart of Clinton City, you are in one sense looking at what remains of years and years of dedication, imperfect dedication, but dedication nonetheless, to the Christian worldview. However, the radioactive disaster of unbelief and faithlessness, which led to the rise of secularism in, Amer secularism in America today, which led to a fracturing of both the church and the family, and which spread across this country through the government and public school systems, has caused what remains of those years of gospel-prevalent culture here in Clinton to erode to, spiritually speaking, a Pripyat-like ghost town. How can we ever rebuild or repair a town with this much damage? That doesn't even begin to address the question of how we could rebuild a country that is as far gone as ours is. Nehemiah also had a monumental task before him. How did he do it? He did it through the power of shared ministry, through a wise distribution of labor, through the individual and collective gifts of the people divinely assigned to him. And he did it through faith that the God who commanded him would see him through to the end. Now before I begin the body of this sermon this morning, I normally walk through a text verse by verse. This passage, I believe, is best served to you this morning, beloved, taking this uh, chapter in thematic clusters so that we can pull out application from the various groups represented here. But if you'll look with me. We will begin at the start of the text in verse 1. What you see here before you is an accounting list of those who labored on each section of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. That's plain enough. This is the God-breathed list of who did what. The remaining chapters will answer the questions of what happened during the build, who opposed the building, how did they oppose it, etc., and it's unclear how much time passed from Nehemiah's announcement to build in chapter 2, verse 17, to the groundbreaking ceremony of chapter 3. But you get this sense when you pick up in chapter 3 that the people, having just said, let us arise and build, they didn't waste a lot of time. They were ready and eager to get to work. There's a sense of urgency, a necessity that seems to be laid on them. And this is the thing, brothers and sisters. After the preaching each week, many of you tell me that God has brought some conviction to your heart or some action points to your mind, some things that you ought to be doing. But how many of you are acting on those immediately? I need to go home and talk to my wife about this issue or that in our marriage or Tell some brothers here about my sin and why I haven't been coming to the communion table. Or to start doing family worship regularly. Or create a family mission statement. Or finally quit this job to get another. Or whatever. As you know, saying and doing are two very different things. I ask you this morning, before we even dig into the text very much, what is causing your delay? Do you remember what God's charge was to you during the sermon last week or perhaps the week prior when Daniel spoke to us. When Jesus gives the parable of the talents, the master in the story having called the final slave a wicked and lazy slave for not acting on what was given to him, and then he casts him into the outer darkness... He didn't look at his disciples in the middle of that parable and give them a wink and say, Guys, I don't really mean that. I just do that for dramatic effect. He began that series of parables, in fact, by saying, The kingdom of heaven will be like this. When my wife does character training with our kids, she goes over biblical virtues and we give them a biblical definition the kids have to recite them, and they usually do it with hand motions. 
The one on diligence is diligence is instant obedience to the initial promptings of God's spirit. What is it, brethren, that God is calling you to do? I command you, I ask you this morning, based on the word of God, do what Christ is commanding you to do. Tell someone who can keep you accountable about doing it as well. The work of rebuilding and repairing the entire wall around Jerusalem here in our text this morning is a laborious task, but each one had to get to work on what was right in front of them. In order to make this efficient, Nehemiah split up the work into about 40 sections of labor at varying lengths. The wall was not a shoddy job. Excavations today in Jerusalem let us know that this was a solid wall. It was about eight feet thick. And the rebuilding of those sections was entrusted to the individual families or groups, usually within close proximity to where they lived. This is how Nehemiah maximized efficiency on this massive project. We're going to get into some of those specific groups that helped with the building in just a minute, but that's the theme that championed this whole chapter. Everyone is working together while minding their own business, doing their job for the sake of the kingdom. I was talking to Jeremy Mefford about this several weeks ago, and he made the comment that what jumps out to him when he reads this passage is that everybody was occupied with their God-given task. Everybody was occupied with their own section of the wall. He's absolutely right. Some of you come to passages like these thinking, I know there's gold here. I know there's goodness for my soul. But where is it? I was talking to my wife about this this week, and she said jokingly, you can come up with some baby names from this list. Guys, you could name your next child Mizpah. It's not a bad name. Well, you could try and do that until your wife informs you that she knew a Mizpah in elementary school who put gum in her hair, and so Mizpah's off the list. True crimes, ladies. We've spoken for a number of weeks on the importance of a corporate work, a corporate body of work together in order to build the kingdom. And what I'm about to say should take nothing away from our responsibility to one another as covenant members. But we see here in the text, everyone had their own assignment. Everyone had their own job. Everyone had their own work to do for the kingdom. Those folks over there have theirs. I've got mine. You've got yours. The body functions rightly, Paul says in Ephesians 4, meaning it grows, it builds itself up in love, only according to the properly measured working of each individual part. Now, how do we build or rebuild Anderson County after the fallout of massive, wide-scale unbelief? How did Nehemiah rebuild Jerusalem? Well, first, he gave his people one job to do. Each person attending to the portion of work that was assigned to them. And each one's work started closest to their home. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness here at Christ the King in Anderson County? I go back to what I said at the beginning. What is the one thing that you need to do right now to be obedient to the Lord. Someone in this room today is likely resisting the commandment of Christ to repent and believe. There's a husband who's refusing to tell his wife that she doesn't have a truly submissive spirit. He's afraid of the fallout that that will cause. There's a wife refusing to tell the elders about her husband's unchecked sin at home. There's a young man still hiding his sexual sin from his parents. There's a young woman who's trying to be an authority over her siblings at home. There's a child still hiding extra cupcakes in their pockets after the fellowship meal. True crimes. 
Someone is still refusing to go to the evangelism or consistently attend prayer meetings. Someone adamantly refuses to fast for anything for any length of time. There is a man here who's refused for years to tell his wife that she's beautiful. There's a woman here who is continually backed down from another sister who will not stop gossiping. Let me speak to the men and the young men. The reason that the church today is overrun with female leadership, the reason that membership is predominantly in churches in America today comprised of women, and as such, the liturgy appeals to female sensibilities, that pastors that are elected in those churches are the pastors that women would approve to hear from, and that their sermons are gentle and affirming but rarely direct and challenging, is because men have refused to obey God and take care of their own business. If we're going to get rid of the rubble of secularism in our city, we have to clean up the mess closest to our own house. In addition, I encourage you to beware of an iron neck, of a hardness of heart. Look at verse 5. You have this statement about the nobles of Tekoa. It says in the LSB, their nobles did not support the service of their masters. Some translations use the term put out their necks. That would be the KJV. Some use the term shoulders. That's the New King James. And some use the imagery of stooping. They would not stoop to help. That's the ESV's rendering. But you get the idea, though. These men were unwilling to assist either the Lord their God, some translations take it that way, or they're assigned taskmasters in the work. And really, it doesn't matter which way you take it, because if they're not going to submit to the Lord their God, they're not going to submit to their taskmasters. And if they're not submitting to their taskmasters, they're not submitting to the Lord their God. We aren't given reasons why, but this much is clear. These men have an authority problem. A neck that won't bend reveals a heart that won't be bidden. A neck that won't bend reveals a heart that won't be bidden. Why is Christendom the way that it is? You are looking at it in verse 5. Men who claim to be followers of Christ but hate his authority, his under-shepherd's authority, or perhaps both. We have a government that pollutes our counties because we have a church that cows to the state, because we have churches being led by and full of women, because they divorce their husbands because he wouldn't do his job. As goes the men, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. And as goes the church, so goes the world. You can see how this spiritual Chernobyl disaster is one bad decision followed by another. Legitimate question. If you had nothing else to go off of for the nobles of Tekoa, but verse 5, where would you say they are right now? Any honest man would have to say, I think they're in hell. Church, consider, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, your justification is through the work of Christ alone and no other. But God doesn't bat an eye at telling you over and over again in His Word that your salvation will be proved on the day of judgment by the working out of your faith through your following Christ in good works. I'm not here asking you that you have to be perfect or live from this point forward, a perfect Christian life. But apart from repentance, you better believe that one bad decision does follow another, and an unsubmissive heart is the one that will end up hearing on that last day, you wicked and lazy slave. There are going to be thousands, nay, I should say millions of people that have Jesus look at them and say just that. But hear this, today is the day of salvation. 
Begin now with repentance and faith in Christ and get up and do what Jesus is commanding you to do. If you struggled with authority, perhaps an encouragement from one of my favorite Narnian characters, Trumpkin the Dwarf, would be helpful. He didn't want to go along with Prince Caspian's plan to blow the horn and go looking for the, poor, the four Pevensey children who were called into Narnia. But you know what he decided in the end. He says to Caspian, you are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice. Now it's time for your orders. Well, let's look at this text and the clusters of folks who are building these sections of walls together. This next section of the sermon is devoted to the guilds that build. I want you to notice first that the high priest and his family are mentioned right at the top of the list. This is, of course, as it should be. The men of God appointed to shepherd the people of God are to lead by their example. The, these uh, priests were in charge of the sheep gate. You see that in verse 1. That's located to the north of the temple mount and where the sheep were brought in to be slaughtered. I'll come back to the sheep gate a little bit later on in the sermon. Also make note, and this is in verses 2 and 3, that working counterclockwise around the city, the walls needed to be built, but from verse 4 onward... The Hebrew uses the term repaired. So it's likely that the priests, with their section of wall and some of the wall close by, had the most damage to it. It was the most severe, and they had the most on their hands, the most work to do. Some things never change, do they? The fallout from the leaven of godlessness has been the corrosion and erosion of the spiritual infrastructure of the church. But the foundation, praise God, still stands in Jesus Christ, and the time to rebuild is now. You'll notice next that we have whole towns outside of Jerusalem helping with the work. In verse 2, we see that the men of Jericho helped build. In verse 7, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah. In verse 13, the town of Zenoah. What's notable here is that those outside of the community of Jerusalem were lending a helping hand in the work. Every Israelite was called upon to build the kingdom. Not everyone could help in the work. Those Israelites still in captivity in Babylon could not help. But a reasonable proximity to the city was not too big an obstacle to keep the body from working together. You'll notice next, there were entire guilds that work together for the good of the city. In verse 8, you have goldsmiths. In verse 8, you also have perfumers. In verse 32, you have merchants, or you might say businessmen, who help to build. These guilds are mentioned in place of others, such as, say, blacksmiths or potters. Our children were asking about some other guilds last night in family worship. I think Judah mentioned, well, what about the blacksmiths? Those are the incomes on the lower end of the spectrum, and so they would have had to been working more frequently to raise an income for their family. The wealthy professions allowed for extra time to work on the wall, and that's why you have their names listed here. Then you have city officials or district rulers involved in the work. The ruler or official of the half district of Jerusalem in verse 12, the ruler of Beth Hakarim in verse 14 of Mizpah in verse 15, of half of Bethzur in 16, the two rulers of Keilah in verses 17 and 18. You also have women involved in the work. In verse 12, the ruler of half of Jerusalem had his daughters laboring alongside of him in the work. These women could have been wealthy widows or just humble servants to the men working on the wall, but here their names are mentioned alongside of their father. Our sisters must be versatile in order to help their men complete the mission. There's a man named Baruch who repaired with zeal in verse 20. There's a man who is called the sixth son of his father who built in verse 30. Where were his other siblings in the building effort? We aren't told, but his name 
is on the list. Now, just take a minute to consider the manifold different groups that were involved in this massive project. Let's talk about the priests for just a minute. I'm going to pick on your elders for a moment again. Church, your elders should be setting an example for you in how to build the new Christendom. Peter, in the passage we went through last year, says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion but willingly, according to God and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. We, as your elders, are to exemplify all the qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But in addition, if we are asking you to take risks to create home economies, we ought to be those who are showing you how to do that. If we are encouraging evangelism, we ought to be out there doing it too. If we are calling for a prophetic voice in the public square, you should expect to know what eloquent and decisive speech looks like in front of a city council member by hearing us do it first. I'm not saying that every elder will be able to exemplify every part of the rebuilding. The high priest, for example, could only lift one brick at a time. He couldn't do the whole wall by himself. But the scripture is clear that we must lead by Example. Let's take another interesting name or group from this list. You have people from outside towns coming in to help build Jerusalem. We get a lot of questions from prospective covenant members here at Christ the King about our emphasis on localism and why we focus so hard on Clinton, Tennessee. Chris or Jeremy or Daniel... I don't live in this area, and I don't feel like the Lord is calling me to move here, but there are no good churches where I'm from, and I want to help. What can I do? Without taking the foot off of the gas of our focus on Clinton, here is a text that supports a temporary partnership where people from outside of one area can come in and help build in that community. Keep in mind, though, this is temporary. When Jerusalem was finished, the folks from Jericho went back to Jericho. They probably went back with a zeal for getting their own city in order. And we're asking folks from out of town who wish to partner with us in covenant membership to do so for a season. We've said somewhere like three to five years, give or take. We want you to help us build here. At the end of that time, let's evaluate where we're at and see if God is raising up a group to plant a church in your area. Maybe God will raise you and others up for such a time as that in the future. We aren't going to do ministry in other counties officially as a church. And if you need pastoral help, we're asking you to come and get pastoral help by coming to us. That's not selfish. That's prudent. Shepherds can't be everywhere at once. We can't hope to outdo the second member of the Trinity in good shepherding. Even Jesus confined himself to a body and shepherded people right around him. What's imprudent is telling people that they can drive one to two hours one way each week to church year after year and pretending that that won't take a toll on their families. We know people who have done this, and it doesn't produce good fruit. Let's look at these guilds for a minute. You've got goldsmiths, you've got perfumers, you've got merchants. These weren't small money-making enterprises. And yet, unlike the nobles of Tekoa, they don't shrink back from hard manual labor. Think about workload for a minute. Consider a man whose occupation involves a lot of driving. His hours are long, and he can't devote the same amount of time to say uh, that, say, a man who owns his own medium-sized, completely self-sufficient business can. That's okay. There's no guilt needed in that comparison. For those of you who have more restrictive jobs, do 
what you are able to do with the time that God gives you. Don't make excuses and have a stiff neck towards the work of the Lord that he's giving you opportunity to do here. Quit coming up with reasons to skip the prayer meeting. For those of you who have more flexibility, that will necessarily mean that more is demanded of you. Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask the more. You have no excuse to not be devoting your energy, time, and resources to the work of the Lord right here in our county. Remember, the only names on this list who didn't help with the work were the men of high rank, those nobles of Tekoa. Take the talents that God gave you, how many ever they are, and use them. The city officials, who says the Bible requires a separation of church and state. Here you have men who were likely appointed not by fellow Jews, but by the Persian government working alongside Nehemiah and his team to build the city of God. Is this the beginning of a Christian nationalism? Well, regardless of your definitions, I ask, what other kind of nation would you prefer? Some of you want to run for public office here in Anderson County. Go for it. If that's your obedience to the Lord right now, better start planning ahead. As I said last week, a job well done was first well planned. Lastly, the women. Yes, ladies, there may be seasons where you will need to do some heavy lifting in order to help fulfill the mission of the man in your life and build the kingdom. And the rules for this are very simple. Women are permitted to help their fathers or husbands in fulfilling their mission unless doing so would break a commandment of God. If I get sick next week, I'm not going to ask my wife to pinch hit for me in the sermon. That has nothing to do with, praise the Lord, that has nothing to do with my wife's competency in the word and everything to do with obeying the commandments of God. In God's providence, some of you men have been blessed with houses full of ladies. Can you not teach them how to mow the lawn or change oil in the car or to work on wood or weld something? You might have them in the shop with you on a regular basis to help you fulfill your mission. And what a blessing that would be to a future husband with such a skilled woman in tow. A man should be the breadwinner for his family. But what if he is injured and can no longer bring home the lion's share of the income. His wife may have to fill that role for a season, or perhaps indefinitely. As long as God has not prohibited it, in His providence, He may at times require it. Well, we've looked now at the groups that are represented in these 32 verses. I want to take just a moment, though, to notice something that is bigger and better than even anything we've said at this point. It takes a lot to clean up the mess of secularism. A whole host of different hands working together. Various groups and gifts being employed. Everyone working on their own assigned task. But this part hazmat cleanup, part generational construction project, has to begin and end somewhere. And you see here in our text that it begins and it ends at the Sheep Gate. This isn't silly allegory, by the way. I recently read about a unique interpretation of Herod's slaughter of the infants recorded in Matthew chapter 2. You know in that story that the male children, two years old and under, were killed. Presumably, children three and up were allowed to live. This shows us that on Judgment Day, Trinitarian Christians will escape God's wrath, while Binitarians, those who believe in two divine persons, and Unitarians, one divine person, must surely perish. Thank you for the laughter. That is a complete joke. I do believe that Binitarians and Unitarians will perish, but not because of that Bible passage. Uninspired allegory isn't grounded in anything except a supposition, something hidden, something foreign, something, if you'll allow me, Gnostic. When you read your Bible each day, however, 
you want to be on the lookout for typology. And I've talked about this in recent weeks, but for those of you who are new here, a brief reminder. Author and pastor Sam Storms defines typology as an interpretation of the Old Testament based on the fundamental theological unity of both the Old and the New Testament, whereby something in the Old shadows, prefigures, adumbrates, that means outlines, something in the New. Something in the Old shadows, prefigures, or outlines something in the New. Broadly speaking, typology is going to find its telos in Christ and His mission. R.T. France says, Typology reveals that Jesus is in line with the Old Testament. He's not opposed to it. Typology reveals how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament. And typology reveals how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus isn't against the Old Covenant, but He's better than the Old Covenant, and He is the completion of the Old Covenant. The city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, for some of you math whizzes who were keeping count, had ten gates. The kingdom of Christ has one. One gate, and that's the sheep gate. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Why am I not coming up with some cute little phrase to get us to Jesus? Because you go to the New Testament and Jesus says, The sheep gate that all of you know, because we're walking around Jerusalem and we have these conversations about the city and... The sheep gate, where the sheep go in to get slaughtered, that sheep gate, I'm that sheep gate. Jesus continues, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A little later on in John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's a new Nehemiah in town now, and his building project is so much bigger than what we can dig up today in Jerusalem. He is building a global city, spanning mountains and oceans, a community that reaches past the skies. And if you can wrap your mind around this, his dominion extends to the farthest galaxies. But make no mistake, in that community, in that city, there's only one way in. I mentioned earlier that there's somebody here who's resisting the call of that greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, to repent and believe. Let me tell you something, friend. The good news is that one gate is still open. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news proclaimed to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again determines a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When the spotless Son of God was slain on the Roman cross of Calvary, the curtain of the old temple was torn into two from top to bottom, and the sheep gate swung wide open. The only thing that stands in your way now is your stiff neck. If you will but for a moment, lost friend, look to the crucified Christ, even for just a moment, looking only to Jesus, believing He is enough to remove your sin, you will enter by that gate. You may wish that 
there were other doors in the kingdom or that there were other ways to get over the insurmountable wall into the city of perfect righteousness. But of course there aren't. Truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs in by some other way, he's not one of my sheep. He is a thief and a robber. Stop trying to get in by another way. Your own efforts, your knowledge of the word that ultimately you keep adding and will further damn you if you do not believe. Your participation here at this church, your tithe money, your kabuki mask game face when you walk through the door each Sunday morning making everybody think it's all okay. The thing that is keeping you from the kingdom right now is the same thing that kept the nobles of Tekoa from working on the wall. Stiff-necked pride to stoop before King Jesus. And today is the day, this very moment right now while I'm speaking is the only moment given to you of any surety. Look to Christ like the Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. If you do, your sin burden will roll off your back and into the grave where Christ took it. For those of us who are in Christ, who have entered through that one and only gate with a difficult task of rebuilding before us, remember this. It's not so much about what we're building, but for whom we are building. We aren't building the kingdom of Jesus here So this town will look like a 1950s Mayberry dream, though that would be a seismic improvement on what we've got. We aren't going before the commission and the council so that you can get back your property taxes. We aren't evangelizing on the basketball court so we can overturn a public school system. We aren't planting our own gardens and raising our own animals so we can get the highest quality vitamins and proteins and stick it to Walmart and to China. We aren't starting our own businesses so we can finally get a good cup of coffee in this town and finally be able to say that the best burger in town is made by a Christian and doesn't come from a gas station. We aren't calling in to the abortion mills ultimately so we can stop abortion. We are here doing what we're doing because all authority in heaven and in Clinton, Tennessee belongs to King Jesus. This is his city. We aren't building our own Christian kingdom. We are building his. We are a part of what could be generations of city rebuilders who will, as Dustin said at prayer meeting on Wednesday night, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put this city and this county, and this country, and this world back together again. But we have to remember this. This world belongs to the resurrected Lamb of God. This is His kingdom. None of us died to redeem the world. Jesus did. He is our King, and we are His slaves. And best of all news, He is for us and not against us. You who are listening right now, who have ears to hear, are living proof that he can take what's dead and bring it to life again. He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can this work not be completed victoriously when the ruler of every square inch of creation is on our side? The Chernobyl disaster has gone through roughly 40 years of mitigation and recovery efforts in order to eventually, hopefully, restore the land to its former utility and beauty. Initially, almost immediately after the accident, development was underway to create a concrete dome nicknamed the sarcophagus. This was put over the site to prevent the spread of any more contaminants. In the last five years, another larger dome was added to allow teams to enter the facility 
and begin the arduous process of removing harmful material piece by piece. Estimates are that the removal process could be done as early as 2065. It takes time to rebuild what has been destroyed by fire. As Nehemiah and the Jews well knew, you begin by assessing the situation by opening up your own sarcophagus and putting what needs to die in there. And then picking up your shovel, picking up your sword, and working hard, both at home and right outside your front door with the very task, the one thing that God's assigned to you for this moment right now. You're working alongside other brothers and sisters who are doing the same, and we're trusting that God will bring the recovery in his time. And we keep at it day after day after day. For those days when the work is hard and finishing seems impossible, remember whose kingdom this is. Whose kingdom is it that we are building? He has promised us that his kingdom will never fail, that it is an everlasting kingdom, and that each stone we lay in building will one day amount to a kingdom that fills the entire earth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its goodness to us and how it encourages us and strengthens us. We confess to you how much we need you at each moment. As Jeremy prayed, we are a very needy people. But we know that your Holy Spirit taking your word and applying it to our lives, we can be made sufficient for the task in front of us. I pray that it is perfectly clear to each one of us this morning, what is that one thing that we must do now to be obedient to you and that we would, as your diligent servants, be quick to do it and obey. But trusting ultimately that even as we build and even as our efforts might be hindered or even thwarted by forces inside ourselves or outside ourselves, that Jesus' kingdom will be built and help us above all things to keep our eyes on him and his glory, knowing that he is for us because by his power we were able to enter through the sheep gate. We pray in his name. Amen.